You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to a new episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. I am your host, Tony Lopes. Our guest today is a major business figure in Las Vegas and a former U.S. Marine. Most recently, he wrote the book Tenacity, a memoir focusing on the determination necessary to overcome any and all unjust obstacles that may stand in the way of one's dreams. As he lived and climbed the ladder of success for 45 years in Las Vegas, he faced a barrage of constraints, including political and police corruption, bribery, coercion, and even death threats. Along the way, he also had a couple of offers to settle matters discreetly with a few well-placed bullets. His choices would have life-altering circumstances for many. He started 20 different businesses after arriving in Las Vegas from the Marine Corps. He dealt with death threats from competitors, like we mentioned, and we'll get into those stories a little bit. He dealt with some police and political corruption and had to deal with it effectively to maintain his businesses and keep himself afloat. And he had to fight and beat esophageal cancer. Here for your listening pleasure are the self-made strategies of Ron Curry. Hey, Ron, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hi, Tony. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks for coming on. You are, of course, joining us remotely from Las Vegas. So we really appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your busy schedule. You're promoting your new book, Tenacity. So let's get into it from the beginning. We'll get to the book, of course. I have listened to it since we spoke prepping for this podcast session. I just thought it was an amazing story. Really, really cool experiences that you had. Uh, Some that were not so cool and quite a bit terrifying that we'll get into as well. But I thought it was really interesting how you had a dynamic approach to business and how you found opportunities. You you even call yourself an observational entrepreneur, if I'm not mistaken, which I uh, resonates closely with me. So can't wait to hear more about how you came up with these ideas and how you let's start from the beginning. So you entered the Marine Corps out of college. There was an issue because you originally went to university and kind of missed the draft because you had a pass because you were going to university, right? Back then it was called it was called a student deferment back then. Right. Sorry. You had a student deferment that would have allowed you to avoid being drafted at the time Vietnam was still going on. And what you didn't know was if you inadvertently dropped one of those courses mid-semester, boom, your student deferment goes away and you get drafted. And that's exactly what happened to you. So tell us a little bit about that experience, uh, your time in the Marine Corps, and then how that led you to the City of Opportunity. Sure. I am a hands-on type entrepreneur. I wasn't then. I was only 19. So I got out of high school in Brooklyn, New York, went to Bernard M. Baruch University in, in Midtown Manhattan, and wasn't really enjoying it. There was a particular class in my third semester that just wasn't for me. So halfway through the semester, I, I dropped it. And as you said, I was shocked to get a greetings because I had a low number in the draft. So if you lost the student deferment, you were you were going to war. I was shocked, but in the mail, I got what's, what was known back then as the greetings letter for the Army. Everybody that was getting drafted, was going straight to Vietnam back then. And I had guys in my neighborhood, one guy I used to play softball with, came back with no legs. Wow. It, it was a brutal war. And nobody ever wants to go to war. It put me in a position of deciding, should I just get drafted into the army or can I maintain some greater control over my destiny? So I did some research and I learned about the differences between the training provided in the different branches of the military. And I learned that the Marine Corps was a bit more intense training. And I felt if I had better training, I'd enhance my likelihood of surviving Vietnam and coming back full-bodied and healthy. So I went into the recruiter when I made the decision and said, I received these greetings. If I sign up with you, can you avoid them? And can I go into the Marine Corps? And he said that he could. Uh, You had to take an aptitude test. And I scored rather high. I was good with reading, writing, and math. Went to a great high school and had a good education. My parents made sure of it. So I scored very high. And another pleasant surprise was 
if you scored high, you could decide where you did boot camp, Paris Island or San Diego. And as I wrote in the book, I love the Beach Boys music. So I thought <laughs> I'd go see what was going on in Southern California. I opted for San Diego, and that brought me to the West Coast. In the Marine Corps, I met a guy who would later move to Vegas with me and be my business partner, Dan Hughes. And we grew up in the same kind of neighborhood. He was from South Philly. I was from Brooklyn. His family and neighborhood experiences, as we got to know each other, were similar. So we formed a bond. And he's uh, a best friend today. We, we came to town, got jobs out of the Marine Corps when our service time was up. Oh, we, well, we didn't go to Vietnam. Let me point that out. President Nixon at the time, during our training, announced something called de-escalation. So many thousand troops a month would be pulled out of Vietnam and no one else would go. So while we were being trained to go there and we were told we were going there, all our orders had to change. And we got to select duty stations from around the world as an alternative to Vietnam. Dan wanted to go to Japan. I said, I really don't want to go to Japan with no money. Let's make some money and go there in style. So I suggested Barstow, which is a little spot in the desert between LA and Las Vegas, which is a great storage facility for military weaponry. There's no rust. And uh, there's a major rail line that lets them take tanks and Amtraks to uh, San Diego Naval Base to to take the weaponry to wherever there's uh, uh, conflict. So I convinced them to accept the two billets for Barstow because I had a couple of sets of aunts and uncles in Vegas. And I pointed out that when we were done with our work week, we'd have pretty good a pretty good time in Vegas with my cousins knowing all the ropes. So that got us to Barstow which got us to Vegas on weekends. When our military service was up, we moved to Vegas. I went into casino dealing. I, I, I was good with numbers and I didn't stay in college. As I said earlier, I didn't have a shingle for a lawyer or a doctor or an architect. So I really didn't have a skill except I had a drive. I wanted to do something that made good money and I could grow. So I thought dealing would be good because I could work a night shift and find something to do during the day. Uh, I got a job dealing downtown uh, and on the job training type situation. And while the book goes into much greater detail, and I think your listeners would be very interested in some of those specifics, I, I'm going to avoid that kind of detail for a short interview. But I learned blackjack, roulette, craps, and baccarat. My philosophy was. There was a great deal of turnover in the casino business in the early 70s, something called juice, who you knew and who had more juice than you could get your job and you would just be fired one day. There was not the kind of protections for employees that there are today. So I thought if I could learn multiple games, I would be more valuable to the casino. And if they had to lay off some people, it wouldn't be me. So I went and learned these additional games, became proficient dealing downtown on Fremont Street for a year, getting that level of experience and proficiency so that I could try to get a job on the Las Vegas Strip, which had better tip average. Ultimately, I got a job at the Tropicana Hotel and worked there from 1975 until I purchased a tavern in 1979 with my buddy, Dan Hughes. Now, Dan went into screen printing because in Philly, that's what he did as a job, he printed flags and signs. So he knew screen printing, and a lot of people may not know it, before the digital process evolved, slot machine glass and reel strips that line up the sevens and cherries were all screen printed. So that's what he went into. He was very good at it, <clears throat> excelled, and became the manager of the local Bally distributing uh, slot machine location which was the distributor for Bally Manufacturing back in Chicago. They later moved to Vegas, the entire manufacturing. But he became the director of the screen print department, and his skills were apparent. He was not only a good and loyal friend, but he was very good at what he did. And I saw a possible opportunity someday where we might be able to use that in business. At the time, there were not a lot of 
competitors in gaming machines. In fact, anyone who's old enough to remember the, the casino floor plans in the 60s and 70s, about 75% of the casino floor space was table games. And the machines filled the periphery. They weren't exciting machines. They were not interactive. It was just someplace uh, where a lot of gambling guys would park their wives as they gambled the real game. <clears throat> so when I suggested to Dan, while we were in the tavern business, which I, I quit the dealing job to run the taverns, he kept his printing job. I asked if there was an opportunity to open a print shop and use his skills. And he pointed out that Bally was pretty much the only machine maker of any consequence, and they had their own print shop. So there was no customer base. Well, there was a salesman at Bally named Cy Red. Cy Red was, was a salesman of slot machines and an innovator, uh, an inventor. He invented a game called video poker. Now, everyone today would say, what? Because everyone knows about interactive gaming today. Well, Cy Red invented video poker and goes to the heads at Bally and says, hey, I've been working on this on your dime. Proprietary, proprietary wise, it's yours. I'd like to develop it. And these smart guys laughed and said, nobody wants to engage in interactive gaming. They want to pull a handle, line up some sevens. So we're not interested. So he opened a little slot business called Fortune Coin Company. And they said, you can build these video poker games. We will agree to not compete with you for 10 years. You don't make slot machines for 10 years. He said, okay, fine. He believed in his product. And uh, he was pretty much just a regular guy. To hear it, I mean, he's now deceased. But to think that he was the guy that started IGT, which is a multi-billion dollar manufacturer of machines today, that's how he started. And my book goes into the kind of detail most people in the world just don't know. And anyone interested in becoming an entrepreneur would be inspired and motivated by things he did, how he did it and how it evolved, as well as the things Dan and I did. And I'd like to think that my book helps people be inspired, reach out and take a shot, do something on their own. And and I mean, for people that want to punch a clock, get a 25-year retirement, God bless them. But for people that want to do something on their own, need a level of perseverance, diligence, and determination. In a short word, tenacity, which is why I entitled my book. And by the way, before the end of the show, I just want to point out, in case someone doesn't tune in for the whole show, they can find details about the book either on Amazon or at my website, ronquoryauthor.com. So Cyred develops Fortune Coin, later to become IGT, a publicly traded company. Interactive gaming goes through the roof. Machines have bells, whistles. There are themes. Uh, and it's a big hit. Yeah, it becomes a multi-billion dollar industry, if not bigger than that. So it's kind of funny that, that you guys saw that opportunity so early on. International Game Technology, short IGT, it became a major player. But what it also did was it told other people that had the computer skills to create a new game concept, wait a minute, why did we let Bally have this market all these years? If, if Cyred could do it with Fortune Coin, we can develop machines and patent and copyright our concepts and pitch them to the ca casinos. So the creation of dozens of worldwide gaming machine manufacturers created the niche that didn't exist when I first pitched it to Dan. These guys wanted to develop a computer chip that would operate the game they invented, but they didn't want to do what IGT did in Valley and build the cabinets and the steel frame and print the glass. They just wanted to do the technical part. So they needed vendors for these other parts of creating a machine, a gaming device. So one day Dan came to me with great vision and said, remember, you ran this by me a couple of years ago? And at this time, we had grown from one tavern location to a couple. And he said, I think now's the time. There's a market for an independent screen print company that will protect the confidentiality of these small manufacturers. And we can make glass. We can pitch designs through our art department. And while they can create a machine, we could give them designs that we think people will be attracted to. Another thing people don't think about. When you're walking through a casino, it is the colors 
and the design of a slot machine that gets your eye, that makes you decide to stop and put money in it. So the design aspect of, of, of the graphics business for slot machines is what actually gets people to stop. We started with a $100,000 SBA loan and four employees. Dan and I were two of the four. And over the course of uh, 20 years, we grew that company to 120 employees and over $12 million a year in sales. Worldwide customers. So that uh, that's how we ended up in the screen printing business with Suburban Graphics. We selected the name Suburban because the first bar we bought was the Suburban Lounge. And we had good luck with it. So we carried the Suburban name into the Suburban Graphics concept. And obviously, that worked out very well for us. Yeah, let me just un- unpack that a little bit, if you don't mind. So sure. some of the things I found really interesting about the book, and this is where it gets into you being an observational entrepreneur. Uh, and I couldn't agree with you more and relate to you more in that concept. I love the idea of always looking for opportunities and and trying to find unique ways to take a little bit of a tangential risk, right? Nothing crazy, but something something that seems worthwhile and you take a shot at it. So for example, while you were dealing, first and foremost, you were in the Marine Corps, you go out to Barstow and uh, the Vietnam War, as you said, kind of comes to an end. They start pulling troops out and the government creates Project Transition, which was basically that you have all these enlisted men coming back from service and they really, a lot of them didn't have the best skill sets, to put it lightly, to re-indoctrinate back into society in terms of jobs. Unless they became a cop or a security guard. Exactly. They were right, fighters. Right. They, they were, were fighters, fighters. Right. Frontline they went soldiers. on unemployment and it was draining the system. Exactly. So they come up with Project Transition, which is basically that uh, if a an employer would hire an enlisted man and train them for six months, the government would pay that enlisted person's salary and pay the employer for six months for having that enlisted person, which was actually a pretty cool program. But this is where the book kind of takes off for me because you think to yourself, well, you know, I need to develop a a solid set of skills and you decide you're going to go be a dealer in Vegas. And uh, so you you pitch your CO, your commanding officer, and he he basically knocks you down, says there's absolutely no way that that's going to happen. You should just go pump gas or work at a service station. And you say- In Barstow. In Barstow, yeah, right. wanted me to stay in Barstow. And you basically say, what, what kind of skills am I going to have if I go pump gas at a service station? The idea behind this is for me to develop skills that will help me to develop my career long-term. So you- And stay off unemployment, yes. Speaking of tenacity, though, you did not take no for an answer. And I, I just want to unpack the fact that you just went, up a level, up a level, up a level, up a level until you finally got to someone that would sit down and listen to your story. And, you know, how did you continue? And I know the book is called Tenacity. And and coincidentally, we're talking about early on your tenacity right from the beginning. How did you in such a and I say this uh, with the least offense possible. I have a lot of respect for the military. Thank you for your service, first and foremost. And to, for all of the service men and women out there who help us keep our freedoms, but let's face it, the military is very much a you know stand in line, know your place. If your CO says you can't do something, you can't do it. Follow orders to the T. How did you just very structured, very, yes, structured, very structured, very structured? And so, how did you find the tenacity to just keep pounding the pavement until you found someone that would let you go be a casino dealer? Well, quite candidly, I worked in an office in Barstow in the supply division. And in the office environment I worked in, all the military rule books were there. And sometimes my workday was done, but I couldn't leave my desk until 4 or 4.30. So I would pull out the rule books and start reading them. And I came across Project Transition. I had never heard of it. And uh, there was no Google. There were no computers at the time. Uh, You just had to read a book. Well, I learned. That, that in the rule book, it actually said project transition could be employed out of state in another city if the commanding officer could maintain adequate controls over the servicemen. So if there was a conflict and project transition had to end and they had to reactivate me, because when you commit to the military, even though you're two, I missed it for two years, but it's a six-year commitment, they could bring you back 
if there's a conflict. So they want to know that you're staying in shape, you're staying well-groomed. And it merely said you have to maintain adequate controls over the enlisted man. And in such case, it could be in another jurisdiction. Well, I thought learning how to deal on the job in Vegas would be a great place to take a no-skill guy like me who had nothing but the drive and desire to uh, pursue that. Well, of course, the commanding officer who lacked the skill of thinking outside of the box said, no damn way, a bit more curt, but that's what he said. And I said, sir, that it's permitted according to the rule book. And, and one of the things you learn in boot camp is there is a chain of command where if you think something's wrong, you can go up the chain of command. And what the drill instructors tell you is you, you technically can go all the way up the chain of command, all the way to the president if you file the proper paperwork. So I went from the commanding officer and I said, I'm going to appeal this. I went to the battalion commander. He told me no way. I went to the commanding general of the base. And he was an older gentleman. He actually listened to me. They didn't have his mind made up. As soon as he heard, I want to be a casino dealer, which, you know, it, it's a legitimate business now. But back then, Wall Street wouldn't invest in casinos. That didn't happen until Steve Wynn used Michael Milken junk bonds to build a mirage. Right. Speaking of which, you, in the book, you mentioned that you played softball against Steve Wynn, which I thought was really interesting back in the day when he was a dealer. When I worked on Fremont Street at the Four Queens, Steve had bought a small 2% interest in the Golden Nugget across the street. We had a friendly rivalry between two hotels and his team played softball against mine. I pitched for mine. He pitched for his. And uh, sort of got to know him, you know, on a, in a friendly rivalry basis. Right. And uh, as his career took off, it was incredible what he accomplished. It's very sad that he's losing his eyesight. Right. Because he's, I mean, he literally had great vision. And now he's losing his vision. But to develop the mirage, when people said that would never succeed, and then grow it into the Bellagio, uh, he built Treasure Island, Kirk Kikorian made him a deal on a cocktail napkin. It's fame, a famed story where he wrote a number on a cocktail napkin and Steve wrote a number and they passed it back and forth. And Kirk Kikorian's MGM company bought all his properties. He took the cash and developed the win where the Desert Inn used to be. Yeah, so... And and I actually saw him at a show, a Dennis Miller show years ago. As I was exiting my row at the end of the show, he was exiting his row. And I and I said to the person I was with, he's not going to remember me, but I'm going to say something because we're going to end up in the aisle together. So I I did. I, I reintroduced myself into my shop. He said, oh, yeah, I had Tony as a catcher and my first baseman was Frankie. What a memory this guy had. I was quite impressed. And I actually wrote him a letter uh, to, to his office at, uh, at the time, the win or maybe the Mirage, telling him how I admired what he accomplished. And I considered myself an observational entrepreneur. I try to find a niche, something that I can afford to get into, nothing like a hotel casino, but I found that he inspired me and I thanked him. And he actually wrote back. Oh, it was great. quite moving. Yeah, quite moving that he would take the time to do that. Well, sorry for the tangent. So first and foremost, you convince the military to let you become a casino dealer. I think that's a really important part of your story. And then as a casino dealer, you didn't stop there. You really used the opportunity to focus on learning the business, learning about business in general. And you were obviously very money smart and you were a bootstrapper early on, essentially. So even, even in your early days, you are already thinking about, I need the money first, not overextending yourself with credit, not going into hawk before getting involved in business opportunities. So I, I really think you you trailed, you blazed the trail, so to speak, for a lot of what entrepreneurialism is today, even early yeah. on then in the 70s. So then as a dealer, you were dealing in the evenings and weekends essentially, and then got your real estate license and were selling real estate during the day. So Talk about, you know, today people talk about side hustles all the time. You were side hustling yeah. way before that was even a thing. So back in the yeah. 70s, were your friends just, what is going on with this guy? Why is he, you know, working as a real estate agent? He's working as a dealer. Did you face a lot of criticism from that? Or was it always just you, you were known as a hustler? 
in a good way. I mean that in a good way. There was no criticism, but when, you know, you work usually 40 minutes on, 20 minutes on a break as a dealer. Uh, if a couple of people call in sick, you might work an hour on 20 minutes off or 15 off. So that varied. And when I was on a dead game, I would think, what else could I do to earn money? And I thought, well, a real estate agent, you make your own schedule. You set your own appointments. You do it during the day, usually. So I could do that. And I had met a lovely gal uh, that I was dating. And uh, we got married in 1975. And then that same year, I, I decided she wanted to have kids. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to make more money. So becoming a realtor was uh, a natural. And in the industry, it's called a farm. Uh, I was, I thought I could farm all the employees at the Tropicana as potential clients. Now today, there are tens of thousands of realtors. Everybody and their sisters are realtors. Back then, my Nevada state license number was about 1,500. That wow. means I was the 1,500th realtor in Nevada. So I made quite a few deals through the Tropicana. And it wasn't as specialized then. You could sell a business, you could sell a house, uh, you could write a lease. So it was an opportunity to make money. And uh, one of the roulette dealers I was friendly with had a duplex investment property he asked me to sell for him. My 21 pit boss had a daughter who was a bartender, and he comes over to me one day on a roulette wheel game and says, hey, could you find a bar? I'd like to buy a bar. My daughter can run it, and I'll have a nice investment. Well. On my way home, I would sometimes stop for a cocktail at a nice little place called the Suburban Lounge. So it was a natural for me to think, well, that would be a nice place. I went in, met with the owner. And, and while the book goes into more detail, ultimately, he said, I would sell it for this number. And my uh, pit boss said, that's way out in the boondocks. They still ride horses out there, which anyone that knows Las Vegas, Spring Mountain and Jones is almost the middle of town today. But it's true, there were people riding horses on the streets. And he said, no, I want to be in Paradise Valley. Keep looking. Well, I had this sliver under my thumbnail, which was that bar that I thought I could run that bar. I was in good shape. I could run a clean, safe place. I could hire bartenders. I didn't know how to bartend. But I could do that. And, and as I thought about things I could do, like I am a realtor, I thought I could run a tavern. And, and you generate revenue from, people may be shocked to hear this, um, when Pac-Man first came out. And you put in a Pac-Man machine, and people would put in a quarter to play it. That Pac-Man machine made over $800 a week in quarters. The bar had a couple of pool tables. The pool tables would make $1,200 a week in quarters. So I didn't have the cash to make the down payment on the bar. And the guy who owned it was willing to carry paper, but I still needed the 35000 down. And that, ironically, was about the amount Jose was going to net from his duplex, which I was I had in escrow and sold. So I thought, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. He may say, no way. But when I brought him his closing package and his check, I said, this was around the time Danny didn't want the uh, that tavern. And I did. I said, Jose, what are you going to do with this money? And he said, I don't know. I guess I'll put it in a bank. And at the time, I said, well, the banks will pay you 5 or 6%. I'll pay you 12 And he said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I want to buy this business. And he said, and I'm honored that he felt that way. He said, you know, when all these guys are on a break and they run down to the break room and you're playing gin rummy for money and you're always reading, you're always studying, you became a realtor. He said, I got a feeling you're going to do something with life. He signed that check over to me at, on the spot without me having any paperwork prepared. He said, I trust you. You're a good guy. And I ran down and, and although there was some hiccups in the bar deal, which the book will describe, I ended up getting the bar. I was a two-thirds owner of it. Dan was a one-third owner. He raised a little bit of money. I raised the rest for operating capital. And that money we raised is how we came up with the two-third, one-third split. Right. And that's where your life sort of takes a turn and really takes an upward trajectory. And, and you were being very humble. But, but I have to say that in the book, you talk a lot about the changes that you made to the suburban West as the new owner to really make it a friendly and safe place 
not your traditional saloon in the middle of the West, in the middle of the desert, right? Which, quite frankly, it yeah. was beforehand. It was a rough place. People today need to realize drinking and driving enforcement occurred in the late 80s. Back, back when we bought the Suburban Lounge, guys would pound down 12, 15 drinks. And, and if a cop pulled them over driving home, he'd take his keys and call him a cab or give him a ride. It was a different time. So when you have a lot of drinking, you have a lot of trouble. You have a lot of fights to argue over whose quarter was next on the pool table. And as the owner, you've got to keep the peace. Thankfully, the Marine Corps gave me the skills to keep peace and make it a safe, friendly place. So people said, would say, I don't want to go in that place, the other place. There's always a beef. This guy that runs this place keeps it. I, get, I can be left alone. So girls would come in, guys would come in. And the place became very popular in an otherwise very small town. It wasn't poker machines yet in 1979. So a couple of slot machines in the corner of a bar did not generate a great deal of revenue from locals. They didn't play slot machines. So when I bought the Suburban West, there were two slot machines in the corner. Hardly made money. Nothing like the Pac-Man or the Pootons. But in the 80s, when Cy Red developed video poker, the business changed from selling drinks and food to a gaming parlor. And the most, most taverns have a limitation of 15 machines. And you had to be very careful what your mix was. Nickels, quarters, and dollars. You didn't want to put in too many nickel machines and not have enough quarter or dollar machines for the players that wanted them. Now, later, technology advanced and multi-denominational machines came about, rendering that whole nightmare non-existent. But back then, you had to decide a lot of things like your mix of machines. You had to overcome people ripping off your machines. As my book describes, I caught a guy for the dot. This is before currency acceptors. People putting in uh, lead slugs instead of Eisenhower dollars. Please elaborate, because I think it's a great story to lead us into some of the craziness that starts to happen, right? You become successful in the suburban West, and you start to see these tangential business opportunities, as you said, the screen printing business, some other things that you got involved in, which which to me was so inspiring, by the way, to, to listen to your stories about how you took it one step at a time, but along the way, you were always observing, as you said, being an observational entrepreneur and looking for opportunities to grow your businesses, but in ways that were related and tangential. They all sort of related to each other, right? Expanding. Either related to each other or something my skill set could contribute to. Right. I wasn't exactly. going to get into something I knew nothing about. Exactly. Exactly. So you were really money smart. You were very business smart. And just a quick sidebar, in the late 70s, you were already a client-focused, customer-focused entrepreneur. You were focused on not how can I fill my coffers with this saloon. It was more so if I treat people well and provide them with a safe place to go to enjoy themselves and to spend time with their friends and family, the money will come. And that, that right. I think is even today, I'm sure back then it was probably even more prevalent, but even today, entrepreneurs sometimes lose that focus, right? There's the, that thought of, I put my hand out and somebody will put money in it. I provide a service or a product and somebody will buy it because it's a air quotes good idea. But really when it comes down to it, what it comes down to is that you have to provide customers with some value, some added value. Like you said, why would somebody go to your saloon over another? Because you're providing them with a safer and more, more enjoyable experience. And in the book, you go into a lot of detail about the things that you did to make the suburban West a lot better, you know, improving the food, uh, focusing on, on providing good food, good service, and great drinks. So in the 70s, where did you find the inspiration to focus on that? Did you have a mentor that sort of taught you that? Or did that come from the fact that you worked in the casino and entertainment industry? Where did you pick that up? Actually, uh, when I bought the Suburban Lounge, it had no kitchen. So uh, I put in a toaster oven and had frozen pizzas and a popcorn maker. That was the food in the beginning. And then I would lose customers. I was there day and night. I mean, I kept my dealing job for about six months because I wasn't sure the bar could support me and my wife. So I would go to the bar in the morning, stock the bottles that ran low, run to the bank, 
place orders, go to the real estate office, show a couple of houses, get a listing, go back to the bar, run home, have dinner with my wife, run to the Tropicana at 7 p.m. to pull my shift, stop at the bar on my way home, sleep three or four hours, be back at the bar in the morning when I could do the bank business for the next day. It was it was kind of hectic. But once I built it to a point I could earn, I quit the dealing job. And uh, as far as your question, my when I was able to borrow about $25,000 to put a kitchen in um, from an aunt in, in, in your neck of the woods in Philly, um, I borrowed the money, picked a section, of, a corner of the bar, and put in something very simple. I was not a cook, a food preparer. So I put in a charbroiler, deep fryers, and a salad table. Anybody can make burgers, French fries, and mix a salad. That was our first menu. It was not a lot of food. Now, I would gradually learn more about food by hiring actual chefs and develop. Uh, when I when I built a place in Opportunity, Nevada, I put I spent $300,000 just on the kitchen. We sold 10,000 burgers a month, as well as full meals, breakfast, lunch, dinner. So I, I learned about things like that, but I didn't have that skill set. Started out with salads, burgers, and French fries. Wow. And it worked. Wow. It That's worked because I was losing customers. They'd say, we're going to go get something to eat. We'll, we'll be back. They'd right. tell me at the Suburban. But they didn't come back because wherever they went to eat, they got settled in and they just didn't come back. And that's why I realized we need a kitchen, Dan. We got to put a kitchen in. We're losing customers. They don't want to leave, but they want something other than a frozen pizza. So that actually worked. So now let's talk about the crazy things that start to happen with your success, right? And uh, I, I say that delicately, but quite frankly, they were just, you know, kind of mind blowing experiences that happened to you throughout the process. Would you pick one story from the book? I, 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 I hesitate to have you tell the, the, all of the stories, like you said, having the, the individuals that used lead in your gaming machines, you had to chase after one with a gun. Uh, taking down the wall adjacent to the suburban west to to increase the parking. All of those stories, I think, are really unique. There's some mob stories that pop up there uh, in throughout the book as well. But just pick your your most impactful. Here's a great here's a great segment that is really the centerpiece of the book, and I won't spoil it for people. But before there was multi-denominational machines, and you had to pick how many nickels, quarters, and dollar machines you would have. If you could find a city that didn't have the 15 machine limitation and you could put in an unlimited number of slots, you didn't have the problem of picking the, the right denomination. So in the, in the adjacent city to Las Vegas, they had not created a room requirement yet, which means you have to have at least 200 rooms before you could have non-restricted gaming. Anybody could have non-restricted. So I found a piece of land in that city. It was zoned for casino. It was on a major thoroughfare and it had everything one would need as far as buffers around the property that was commercial or industrial. Anything I had learned from the use permit and development process in the city of Las Vegas, this, this lot had it all. If your listeners would picture this, what if you make the biggest investment in your life only to find out that one of the city councilmen that regulates your business license is a competitor and would do anything to keep you from competing with him at a higher level. What I encountered in the city of opportunity was just such a corrupt city councilman who had a small town police department that would do anything he wanted and frame me with multiple felonies to do away with me as I was pursuing the use permit for a full casino license. And as I had to defend myself through those charges, I couldn't go to the State Gaming Commission for a gaming license. I had to clear my name. And I, I think your, your viewers will be very interested in the creativity we implemented with an undercover private investigator and what I learned through his one year plus undercover operation and how I fended off the attack on my reputation trying to incarcerate me for 50 years and what I did for payback when I prevailed against him in the Supreme Court of Nevada. 
right. There are some pretty amazing stories that come out of that, including you end up on trial for kidnapping and a whole host of other crimes, as you said, that that could have put you away for quite a while. Yeah. And their corruption level was so intense that later there was an event in another of the dozen businesses I owned that had nothing to do with me, but an employee following the orders of his general manager committed a crime. And when I learned about it, I said, you need to go to the opportunity. I said, where did this happen? He said, an opportunity. I said, well, you need to go tell them. Now that I know it, either I need to rat you out or you need to go tell them. So he did. And the police captain that I described as being corrupt actually said to him, I don't care that you committed this home invasion. I will give you full immunity if you say Ron Corey order. And he said, I didn't even know Ron Corey when I did that. He said, I don't care. You point the finger at him, you get immunity. You don't, you're going to spend at least five years in prison. And he said, I'm not going to do it. He had nothing to do with this. And he came back and reported that to me. So I assured him I would not forget his his honesty and loyalty. And ultimately, after we put the city councilman and the policeman in their place, and the employee did get five years in prison. Luckily, friends of mine in Vegas retired from the police department, with which I was very close, Las Vegas police, and became parole board officers in Northern Nevada for the Nevada Parole Board. And I contacted these old friends and explained what had happened with David and said, I need to do something to get him out of prison. I will vouch for him. I will do whatever is needed. And those good and loyal friends, one of which was the undersheriff of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department and a former Marine. We had a great bond, a great loyalty for one another, a great friendship. And he got Joe out in under 12 months. I'm sorry, David. Got David out in under 12 months. So I don't want to be a spoiler for that, but um, they will be very interested to see what the undercover operation revealed and how we paid back the councilman for what he tried to do. And we ultimately developed that neighborhood casino there. And then later, years later, as multi-denominational machines came out, having 80 machines didn't mean anything as it did when you had to pick a denomination. It was just a nuance of the gaming business that you had to deal with pre-1985, but no longer with multi-dena. And then currency accepted made life much easier. Instead of taking bags of quarters to to the bank every day for usable currency uh, that came out of my machine, you had currency acceptance. People didn't use coins anymore. So the the industry evolved, which the book goes into greater detail. And uh, another thing that happened in the mid-80s they'd find interesting was I found a niche in the fact that the town lacked a quality limousine service. And as drinking and driving enforcement became a reality, more people would rent a limo so they could drink and not drive. And uh, our limos were pretty much glorified taxi cabs. So I did some research in San Diego. There was actually a company there named Presidential Limousine Service. I checked with my local attorney about using the name. And there was no problem using the name here since they didn't have uh, it reserved in Nevada. So I started Presidential Limousine Service. And little did I know with what I thought was finding a new niche for a purely stretch limousine service, not formal airport type limousines, just stretch limousines, tuxedo choker, all these nuances I brought to the industry that didn't exist. And the decades long limo companies that were here forever uh, engaged in violence and death threats to try to intimidate me from pursuing it. And the book goes into pretty entertaining detail on how I overcame that. Let's, I, th- I think that's a bit of a tease, yeah. but Presidential Limousine Service is here today. That's with hundreds of cars. I've sold it, but I started it in 1984 and it's still in operation. So what for you in all of these stories was the most memorable and pivotal moment in your entrepreneurial journey throughout this process? And you faced, as you said, there are death threats, there are uh, offers in your favor 
to correct things from individuals that could have made problems go away in the South Philly or New York sense of things. Um, You yourself were from New York. I know we didn't talk about that because the beginning of the book talks about your childhood in New York and how you stood up to bullies as a child and how that taught you later in life to continue standing up to bullies and to continue fighting for what you thought was right. And throughout the book, you talk about how you've done the right thing throughout your life. And one of those things was turning down an offer in your favor to take care of someone for you. I'll I'll just touch on it. Sure. Uh, My dad grew up in Brooklyn, worked in a Wall Street brokerage house. He worked a normal job, lived the straight and narrow. But as anybody who grows up in a a city like Brooklyn or Philly, uh, the guy next door is a mobster. Doesn't mean you are. But you grew up together. You know each other. And even though you may not condone his lifestyle, he's a guy you grew up with. So if he needs help, you help him. When this particular captain in one of the five families went away for many years, my dad told him, if your wife or kids need anything, have them call me. My dad was handy. If there was a plumbing leak or anything, he took care of it. So when the mobster got out of prison, he always felt indebted to my dad. And my dad didn't need a favor return. So as the battles for presidential actually made the news and got printed in a paper back in Brooklyn, this mobster came out to Vegas to see me. And I knew him. He was a neighbor. I grew up playing with his son. And he came into my bar one day and went into the office. And he said, I read about what these guys are doing here, these death threats, uh, torturing your cars. I owe your dad big time. I could never repay him. Let me take care of this. They will never mess with you again. I said, uncle, he's not really an uncle, but you grow up with respect towards the older people in your neighborhood. And they were uncle Fred and Helen. I said, uncle, thank you so much, but I can't do that. If something happens to these guys, the cops are going to, it's in the news. They know I'm battling. If they disappear, Cement shoes and Lake Mead. You don't think they're going to come looking at me and jeopardize my gaming license? I said, look, I don't think they're going to fulfill their debts. But if they do, let me go down with a smile on my face, knowing you're going to come back and give them some payback. But in the meantime, I got to do this my way. And he kissed me on each cheek and said, you know how to find me. And uh, that's just one example of settling matters with bullets. That was an option. And I opted against it because it was the right thing to do and ended up prevailing my own way. Right. Now, so going back then, what was one of the most memorable stories, uh, whether it's in the book or not, in your career, a pivotal moment that you feel like really catapulted you to success? And did you know it at the time or or were you kind of rolling the dice, for lack of a better term? I'm going to answer that in, in this way. There are two forms of success. It was personally rewarding to have these challenges in the city of opportunity, having committed $270,000 to this piece of real estate, which was a lot of money to Dan, and then not be able to build what we envisioned. That was very stressful. And then to have these felony charges, I never had to hire a criminal attorney in my life until then. So in selecting a private investigator and, and actually hiring him, to go undercover and befriend my accuser was thinking outside the box. And I, and I said, I know this may not be fruitful, but I think if he ends up thinking you're his new best friend, we just may get the proof we need to clear my name. Well, prevailing over the felony charges and against them in the Supreme Court for the gaming use permit, uh, that was a pivotal moment in self-realization that failure is not an option. You do not give up a fight just because it's tough. And you demonstrate some determination if you're in the right and you just keep swinging the bat or you'll never hit the ball. So on one way, that was a pivotal moment in achieving some level of success because that gaming property and dining facility became a major contributor to our list of business. Later, years later, another friend of mine who was in the car business in Texas moved to Vegas and asked me to join him in getting into the new car business. We had two Hyundai dealerships, a Kia dealership, and in California, a Chevy, Cadillac, and Hyundai dealership. And this was the second rewarding thing because 
I like to call the car business the best kept secret in the world. The money you can make in that business is a reason a lot of new car dealers have private plans. It's great money if you run it well. It's not great money like anything if you don't. And when you earlier said something, it occurred to me, there are bar owners who take their eye off the ball once they start achieving a level of success. And I know one in particular who thought, wow, I'm just going to go away all the time because I've got this cash flow. Well, the cash flow didn't continue when you're not there watching your business. And he ended up losing that location. And it otherwise was a great location. But you can't go out of town four days a week to, you know, drive down to Southern Cal and sit on the beach. Got to run your business. So this friend of mine, Don Tamburo, was in the car business in Texas. He was very successful. I've seen his dealerships there. So I was very willing to go into business with him in Las Vegas and purchase a dealership and then grow it to six dealerships. And that was very rewarding financially. So I think that answers your questions in a twofold. It does. Absolutely. And thank you for that. So a lot of people talk about scaling businesses, right? Growing businesses, which you've done many, many, many times over. So let's just take the example of the car dealership, which is a lucrative business. But again, to your point, you have to do it right. What would you say your top three best practices are or top three tips are when you're entering into a business opportunity with another individual on top of that? Because then you have partnership and relationship dynamics that come into play there as well. So what are your sort of top three best practices for scaling a business successfully, repeatedly? Well, you need to have a good product, obviously. And at the time, Hyundai had really turned the corner and was putting out a great product with their Sonata in 2010. Um, We had a super location and I was a bit of a fanatic as I was in my bars with cleanliness. I didn't think people should be walking around thinking about spending twenty dollars to $40,000 and have to step over old plastic water bottles and cigarette butts. So I made sure we hired a team of valets that walked around every day with a broom and a buck and a trash can on a stick and kept the location clean. I, w- I would walk through the dealerships every morning and tour them. My partner, Don, knew the car business. So I was very comfortable with him crunching those numbers, deciding who was the right sales manager, uh, how they were making deals. So I didn't get that involved in that. I got involved in anything he asked me to get involved with. But uh, keeping the place clean for customers and and having the right product, the right location. And finally, um, I designated myself as the contact person. I had an assistant who would monitor online uh, comments. And if someone had a bad experience, because when you've got a hundred employees possibly dealing with customers, whether it's your parts department, your service department, or your sales department, uh, people don't treat your customers the way you want. And that will look bad for you. I've oftentimes told people, they say, oh, I'll never use Allstate insurance again. And I said, Allstate's a great company. You just had a bad agent. Don't blame the company because of the experience with an agent. Well, when Eva would find something posted on Yelp or online about an experience, customers were shocked to get an immediate email or phone call. And if needed, put me on the line, find out what happened, what can we do to make it right. And in so many cases, I'm going to give you two free oil changes. And they were delighted. Uh, that is so easy to fix. And, and people would reverse bad postings. And I think that's important because people will check out the business they're going to deal with before they go in. When we bought one dealership, it had an F rating with the Better Business Bureau. I learned the seller who we purchased from just never responded to complaints. So he had an F rating. I went down to the local Better Business Bureau, met the director and said, I am going to be more involved in this. I want to elevate the rating. Can't we start fresh since we bought the business? And she said, no, because you kept the name. You have to earn it. So I I did just that. I earned it. And we ended up being an A-plus rated Better Business Bureau company. And the additional uh, pat on the back or badge of honor being considered an accredited business, which you have to earn. And those factors all contributed to the dramatic success of these car dealerships. 
which we kept for five years and sold in 2015 and did great in operating it. We did great selling them. And uh, I had to decide what I was going to do with my life at that point. I had sold the graphics company, the bars. For the first time in, a, in my life, I really had nothing to do. And it wasn't to earn money. I, I My investments were good. I had a lot of real estate investments. I, I was earning, but I needed something to do. I needed to feel like I was contributing. I was relevant. And uh, I got involved with a company called Square Panda with Andre Agassi. And uh, it's a learning aid for children to uh, learn how to read and spell at an early age. We own the patents to it. We're marketing it in this country, in Italy, in uh, China, and in India. And I'm on the board of directors. I'm a major investor. And uh, that didn't take a lot of my time. So I decided to write a book. And over 2016 through 2018, I started telling my story. And my book, my story, was more than twice as long as the book you listened to on Audible. And, and the editors that I hired that were in the industry told me, you're a new writer. No one is going to buy a book the size of War and Peace. You need it to be marketable. So I said, well, all those things and all the stories I tell, they're all part of my life. I don't know what to cut out. You guys have a more detached vision of this. Why don't you send me back what you think we should cut? So there's a lot of stories that have yet to be told, but um, ended up getting the book published, put it on Amazon, created a website. And then I learned from the book consultant from Connecticut that I hired that 25% of all books sold today are bought in audible form. I didn't know that. That's a large percentage. So I concluded, uh, just like with my other businesses, think out of the box. If, if that's the case, I'm going to get a familiar voice to do my audiobook. And I reached out to Gene Hackman, who had a voice I thought was distinguishable, but he had retired and didn't want to work. But his agent told me she also represented, and she gave me a list of actors. And when she said Michael Madsen, I knew instantly who he was from Donnie Brasco and Reservoir Boys. I thought he had a very unique voice. He didn't have a New York accent. But then I've kind of lost most of my Brooklyn accent. I still say water, but uh, I hired <laughs> Michael Madsen. He came to town for a week, put him in a suite at the Bellagio. I picked him up every morning, drove to the recording studio. He read my entire book, and it's available in audible form, paperback, hardcover, and Kindle, either at my website, ronquarryauthor.com, or on Amazon. And the title, again, is Tenacity. Yeah, I can't, to those who are listening or watching, if you're watching this on YouTube, I cannot emphasize how great of a book it is. First of all, Michael Madsen does do an excellent job reading it and really does add that sort of uh, Vegas tough guy aspect to it. Um, and the the vivid imagery of a lot of the experiences that you went through from chasing down someone dumping lead into one of your gaming machines with a gun shooting at him and then eventually becoming a, an honorary dep deputy of the city of opportunity, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? City of Las Vegas. Oh, that was in the Las city Vegas of Metro. Las Vegas. Sorry yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't very popular in the city of opportunity <laughs> after, after those events. That's right. But in, as Las Vegas, in Las Vegas, I was friends with every sheriff. One undersheriff was a former Marine. We were on the Marine Corps Support Council board of directors together with the former governor. And uh, I actually encountered an incident where a cop was getting beat up and he needed help. And I was willing to get involved. And I jumped into the fray. And between that and catching a purse snatcher on the strip, which the book goes into more detail, the sheriff at the time came into the bar and said, what I've been reading in the paper between the purse snatching event which was publicized, and uh, you helping my officer, Walter Davis, when he was bleeding from the head, and this guy could have killed him. I'm going to award you this deputy sheriff's band. And each subsequent sheriff has given me the card that goes with it. Now, there's no power. I have no law enforcement power, but it's pretty cool. It is the Metro badge. It's in a wallet that I keep my credit cards in. And quite honestly, if I get pulled over going too fast and I take my license out and they see the badge, 
lot of times a cop will say, what's that? And I'll say, well, the sheriff gave it to me because of this. And they'll tell me, okay, slow it down. And I'll oftentimes not get a ticket. Not too shabby. A good uh, fringe yes, benefit. Yes. Um, so, okay, speaking of tenacity, though, you fought and beaten esophageal cancer as well. Can we talk about that a little bit? When did that occur in your life? And how did you keep yourself in a positive mindset throughout that very difficult experience? And, and I guess we can relate that as well to how you've kept a positive mindset in all of these tough experiences that you faced. Okay. The undersheriff I spoke about would. He and his wife shot on my Thursday night pistol shooting team that I sponsored. And we would hang out at the Suburban Lounge after competing. And he convinced me to start going to this doctor he used in Santa Barbara. Vegas was a small town. And when you're a small town, you can't support the best doctors and the best of anything. And he said, uh, with your dad's history of cancer, you definitely should be getting a more thorough physical. So Eric and Linda introduced me to Dr. Murray in Santa Barbara, and I went there every year for a thorough three-day physical. And Dr. Murray would only see three or four patients a day. He would talk to you for an hour. What's it been like this year? Tell me what you've encountered. He'd want to know anything. So one time in 2005, I said, you know, when I eat, I feel like I'm clearing my throat a lot. Does that mean anything? And he said, hmm, well, we'll look into it. He orders a barium swallow in what is a moving x-ray as you're swallowing and the table moves, the radiologist is watching what happens to this liquid as it traverses your throat, esophagus, stomach, and saved my life. The radiologist says in the report, it looks like the barium passed over a little lump. It might've been a food particle on the esophagus lining. So we should watch it, check it next year. When I go back to Dr. Murray for the end of the three-day physical, you get your summary report. He reads the report and he says, if this is not a food particle, Ron, you won't be here next year. Esophageal cancer has an 8% survival rate. If it's a tumor, it is going to be so aggressive, it'll kill you in six months. So I did some research online and lo and behold, those numbers were exactly accurate. So he says, you need to stay in Santa Barbara an extra day and uh, I'm going to get you on a table. I'm going to have a surgeon go down your throat and we're going to see what that is. They did a pathology report. It was a very early young cancer, which we learned the next day. And I was in the same office where he diagnosed my dad's pancreatic cancer years earlier. I took my dad there and he wasn't feeling well. So uh, it was kind of a shock. And I said, okay, how do we find it? He said, there's a doctor named Tom Demeester at USC Hospital in the LA area. He's the guy that does nothing but esophageal surgeries. It's a specialty. I got you going there to see him in two weeks. So I came back to Vegas, uh, saw Dr. Demeester. He did his own exam. He did his own uh, esophagectomy. And uh, I'm sorry, he did his own scope and determined I was a good candidate for surgery. I was in good shape. I'd be opened up for 10 to 12 hours. I mean, from here to my belly button and around my back. It, to pull out your esophagus, and half, it turned out to be half my stomach, so that he'd have a good perimeter around the tumor. Uh, and then redirect your stomach through your diaphragm to your throat. It's a long surgery. He had a team of surgeons uh, there. You can't even see the scar, the plastic surgeon. I mean, it's very visible in my midsection, uh, but uh, the plastic surgeon did a great job here. And Dr. Demeester and Dr. Murray saved my life. And I tell the story in this detail because I've come back to town Friends have asked, how did you know you had it? And I told them, and they've gone for a physical to check up on something as insignificant, seemingly insignificant, as clearing your throat off. Because early detection and staying in good shape is how you beat it. Dr. Demeester told me, very few people can be filleted like that for 12 hours. Their body just can't take it. You're lucky you stayed in good shape. all And it was a long recovery. I mean, once you lose your esophagus, that's the flap that keeps your stomach contents in. You can't lay flat. Whatever's in your stomach comes right up. You can't hang upside down. You can't lay flat. You need an adjustable bed. But these changes are better than dying. But while I was waiting for Dr. Demeester's surgical date, he said, this is a risky surgery and a terrible cancer. We're lucky we caught it early 
you need to make your final arrangements. So I came back to town and went to the local mortuary and made my own arrangements. So if something went wrong, my kids didn't have to do it. And uh, as it turns out, my arrangements are prearranged for when that day comes. Hopefully that day is 20 years away. And uh, quite ironically, two years later, as I recovered from the surgery and got more strength and more, I lost 50 pounds. Um, I'm very thin now as a result of not being able to eat much. My wife caught colon cancer and caught it uh, too late. And she succumbed to it in uh, 2009. I'm so, so sorry, Ron. Sorry that's the cancer it. story that people can learn from. Staying in good shape means a lot. Early detection. Go get a good physical. And if you catch it early and you get the right medical team, you too can beat cancer. Now, do you think that your mental tenacity and quite frankly, first of all, where do you think you picked up your mental tenacity? But do you think that that was a contributing factor that that kept you in a positive, I can beat this mentality? And then that in some way aided in your ability to face these things like you faced so many others and overcome it with flying colors? You know, I have to tell you, the training you get in the Marine Corps, it's not just physical. It's not just hand-to-hand combat skills. They instill in you a mental attitude that failure is not an option. If you take on a mission, succeed. And while I probably had certain traits as a teenager, I enlisted at 19. I really didn't have many life experiences. But the training in the Marine Corps makes you feel like you can literally do anything. I could run forever. You know, when you, when you watch a, a cop show and you know, a cop may not be as fast as the guy he's chasing. Why does he catch him? Because the guy can't run more than two blocks and the cops work out. So he may be going at a slower pace, but that guy runs out of steam. He's winded. And after two blocks, he's in handcuffs. Well, you stay in good shape for the battle that's coming. You never know what it may be. You might end up helping a cop out who's getting beat up. You might catch a purse snatcher and have to get physical with him. And you might have to defeat cancer. But you need to have a mental attitude that's positive because it was so hard to overcome the results of that surgery. Um, I just wasn't willing to give up. I wanted to be around for my kids and uh, still live in life. You know? As as I kind of proved up because the cancer was in 05. I got back to my life in 07. And in 2010, we bought our first car dealership. And I sort of built a whole new career. An incredible story, an incredible story of tenacity, quite frankly. Ron, thank you so much for sharing. I highly, highly, highly recommend that people go check out the book Tenacity by Ron Corey, C-O-U-R-Y. You can find it on Amazon, as Ron said, and that's both on Kindle, paperback, and on Audible as well. I listened to the audio version with Michael Madsen, which was absolutely entertaining, full of amazing stories. Ron, thank you so much for sharing and for your time. It's been a true pleasure, Tony. You're a terrific interviewer, and I thank you for letting me do this. Thank you. 